Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome back, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. Today I have with me Jennifer Adams. She is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and also a Clinical Associate Professor at the Idaho State University College of Pharmacy. This is going to be a little bit different podcast, focusing more on the legal end as opposed to my last episode. We're really going to look at why we have so many laws in pharmacy and what some states, such as Idaho, are really doing to kind of help let pharmacists practice and practice are truly in our profession. Jennifer, what other current roles do you have? So after graduation from pharmacy school, uh, I am a proud alumnus of Idaho State University. I worked at the American Pharmacists Association. I worked in student affairs and worked with all the student APHA ASP chapters across the country. And then I went from working at APHA and I went over to the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy and I worked with the faculty and deans at all the colleges. I did that for about 10 years. During that time, I got a doctorate in education focused in higher education administration. And I was really excited to get the opportunity to come back to my alma mater and serve as the associate dean, where I also get the fun pleasure of teaching the pharmacy law course. That's great. It's always good when you kind of return to your roots a bit, especially when you've you've had such a wide scope that you've had with all the other colleges of pharmacy across the U.S. So that's awesome. Part of the reason I brought you here today is I really think that Idaho is kind of leading the way in a very unique field. When most people think of Idaho, they don't always think of it as the pioneering leading the way when it comes to, to, to the modern society, if you will. They think more of the mountains and the ruggedness of it. But Idaho did something pretty interesting recently, and please fill me in or correct me if I'm wrong here, but they basically eliminated the need for taking a state MPJE or law exam. Can you explain, in case I misinterpreted this, exactly what they did, why they did it, and how it's working now? Sure. So our state board of pharmacy has taken a very interesting approach to our pharmacy rules. In some states, they're called regulations. Some states called code. Every state has a little bit of a difference in how they refer to things, but you have statutes that are passed by your state legislature. So those are the laws passed by the legislators. And often those laws need a little bit of clarification in the way that they're implemented. And that happens through an agency like the Board of Pharmacy, where they pass rules or regulations to be able to give a little bit more information for pharmacists on how you might implement that law. So I'll give an example. Continuing education is often passed in a statute where the state legislators will say, you really need to have continuing education if you're going to be a pharmacist. And then the Board of Pharmacy will say, yes, you do. And you need to every year have 15 hours. So that's an example of how a rule or a regulation would provide additional information. So what our State Board of Pharmacy did was they went through all the state board of pharmacy rules to look and see, does everything here make sense? Do we need to make some changes to some of these things? Are are there things that are out of date? And they really took a wholesale look at everything that was happening. And in doing so, they used a handful of criteria about what was what was going to remain in terms of what was in the law book. And what they made the determination was, is there evidence to support it? Have we had cases where people have been penalized from the Board of Pharmacy based on this particular rule or regulation? How does it support our mission of improving public health? And so they really went through and they looked at all of the 
rules and regulations that we had in our state. And they actually did a repeal and replace. So they got rid of everything. And then to add things back in, you really had to justify from a very evidence-based perspective as to why that would remain and what would happen. So from that perspective, the amount of laws that we had in our state governing pharmacy were reduced pretty significantly. They cut a lot, more than 50% of the information that had previously been there. And so in doing so, for a law exam like the MPJE, you have to have a certain number of questions. And Idaho being a state with a smaller state with less people, less pharmacists um, than some other states, to validate a question for use on the MPJE, it would have to be a practice question for probably about four-ish years was the ballpark. And so to field test a new question and get the Idaho-specific question into the MPJE based on the amount of people that would be seeing that question would take a really long time to add new questions. So as the board is making this big change to everything in our law book, a lot of the things that were previously in the MPJE that were Idaho-specific had to be deleted because they were no longer relevant. So then as they look through, there were maybe only going to be one or two questions that were still left on the MPJE that were still valid. And it would take four years to (laughs) validate new questions. Well, before you know it, you've compromised the security of the Idaho MPJE because there's only two questions and everyone's getting the exact same one. (laughs) So that was one of the considerations um, in looking at eliminating the MPJE is, you know, hey, we've gotten rid of a number of things that the Board of Pharmacy either determined were outdated or weren't evidence-based. And so they were really left with very few questions to their disposal at the MPJE. So the other piece that they looked at related to this as well is, you know, what do other health professions do in terms of a law exam? And it varies a little bit state by state, um, and it varies profession by profession, but predominantly physicians don't take a law exam before they're licensed in a state. I did not know Often, that. Right. Most people don't in pharmacy. We, we tend to put a lot of restrictions on ourselves that no one else would require, but we um, self-apply them. And a law exam, I think, is a perfect example of that. So most physicians in most states don't take a law exam, and if they do, it's often a take-home exam. Um, The other piece that they looked at was, you know, what do dentists do, veterinarians? What do the other health professions in our state do? And what they found was that in the event that any any health profession did have an exam, it was a take-home exam that you had to submit um, after you'd been able to, you know, look up all the laws and see all the information. For those health professions that didn't have a law exam, what they had was an attestation. So you would attest when you receive your license that you know where the laws are available, that you can find the laws, and that you'll abide by the laws. And so if you were to come back in front of the, you know, say, Board of Medicine and say, you know, I didn't have to take a law exam, so I shouldn't be held responsible for breaking this law, you would perjure yourself because you've attested that you know the law as part of your process of being licensed. And so that's actually the approach that the Idaho Board of Pharmacy took in eliminating the MPJE was that they decided we're going to have the same sort of a process that other health professions have, and we're going to have pharmacists attest that they know the law. 
Wow, that's um, that's really innovative idea to it. And before I kind of get too far in the weeds on this, one thing I thought was really interesting that you said that kind of popped in my head. I've taken a few notes here. So Idaho, obviously very limited with the amount of pharmacists they have and the amount of people versus a state I'm in like Ohio, which again is not the biggest state in the union, but is you know pretty big. And mm-hmm. one thing that I thought was interesting that you said was that the physicians obviously don't take exams when from state to state to state. And so we're pharmacists, we do. And sometimes that can kind of trap you in a state as a pharmacist. If you're in a, a dying state versus a thriving state, that's a big difference of, you know, can I move to that state or not? Whereas the demand and the flexibility of that really goes a long way with you know, one, allowing us to practice and also meeting the demands that go state by state. You have a state like, say, Texas that could be growing in a state like Ohio that it has the major brain drain going on and say Texas needed pharmacists, you can't just transfer from Ohio to Texas, which, you know, I didn't realize physicians could do that, I guess. Maybe that's a little bit ignorance on my part, but that's, that's really amazing. So yeah. Well, they still have to be licensed state by state, just like pharmacists do. But taking the law exam is usually the one piece that is kind of a challenge in terms of mobility of your license. Yeah. The other challenge that, you know, pharmacists have as well in terms of having mobility of their licenses, the reciprocity process um, for pharmacist licensure. So that's another change that Idaho also has made recently is that we um, have a multi-state licensure that if any other state agrees to recognize Idaho's license, we will recognize theirs. So there wouldn't be a license transfer or reciprocity process that currently exists. So that's something that passed fairly recently. So far, no other states have signed on, but who knows, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to end up with something similar to what the nurses have with their licensing compact. Yeah, that sounds like a great thing just for mobility and peace of mind and everything that goes with it. I know I don't know how many pharmacists I know who stress out about taking this state's exam or should I take this one? What if I move here? I got I went to school here, but I want to go live here now, or I have a residency in this part of the country. And so it really kind of helps clean up a little bit of that. And I think that's awesome. It's kind of interesting to me to hear that, you know, Idaho is leading this almost like libertarian like charge of everything. And I really think that's a, it's actually the right thing to do in my opinion. Well, I'm sure there's lots of opinions out there. (laughs) Um, But most of the folks here in Idaho, I think would agree, you know, we recognize that every state's going to still have different laws. And each state is going to look at how they regulate the health professions each differently. And it doesn't mean that you don't still need to know the law. There was a concern that nobody's going to attend the law CE anymore. You know, we, we also got rid of the requirement that you had to have uh, live hours of CE. You had to have law CE. There are a couple different specific requirements. And now it's very general that you have to have 15 hours, leaving it up to you as a pharmacist to determine what education you really need um, for that 15 hours. And it's interesting because everyone thought for sure nobody's going to come to the law CE anymore. But people are still coming. Um, They're still attending live sessions. We've had a little bit of a downturn in the number of people who attend the live sessions. But people still want to know what's changed in the laws, even though they're not required to have a law CE anymore. That, that's almost counterintuitive, and you kind of called yourself out at that point. You think more less people would show up, but actually it's basically been the same, just a few more to the live session. That's, If anything, I guess that's a, a testament to our profession that we, we do do our due diligence and stay on the up and up with everything. So yeah. do, you, do you think that every state needs to have their own law exam, or do you think that 
more states need to move this way, like like Idaho, and really focus on just doing it almost as a CE with more of a federal MPJE, if you will. Is that kind of the the gist I'm getting and understanding? Actually, I don't even think we need the federal one. Oh, really? We don't have anything in Idaho anymore. So the MPJE, MPJE excuse me, has a federal component, and then there's a component that's specific to whichever state that you're taking the exam for. And it varies, you know, state by state uh, because laws are different state by state. I don't think taking an exam is something that's going to say, you know what, I know this. I know a lot of people who cram the information right before the exam and take the exam and maybe never practice in that state, maybe never use the information that they just crammed for and took this exam for. Does that really mean they know the law? I would say probably not. When you know the law is when you're living in the state, you're practicing in the state, and you have to practice within the law that exists where you are. That's when you learn it. You pay attention from a very practical perspective based on what you need to conduct your practice. If I'm not a wholesaler, do I really need to know all the wholesale law? Oh, those, those, maybe, those maybe beat me not. <laughs> right? Do I need to be sure that the wholesaler that's, you know, providing medication to my pharmacy is following the law? Yeah, you know, as it relates to how I'm receiving the medications. But do I really need to know all the details across everything? Or do I just need to know what I need to know to be able to lawfully practice as a pharmacist within the context of how I practice. And if I'm going to switch to a different pharmacy practice setting and there's different laws in that different setting that regulate that setting there, then I need to make sure I'm really understanding well-versed in that. But I personally don't think that any state should have a law exam. I can I can already feel the daggers coming at me from <laughs> NABP. But for the exact same reason that other health professions don't have law exams, Why would we require pharmacists to go through this extra step and this additional hoop? You know, when we want to be able to move our licenses from one state to another, is that really the key piece that's going to say that that person knows the law? Really going to prevent someone from breaking it? Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting, uh, really interesting concept. And I actually really agree with you on it. I would maybe lean the way that, okay, you may have to mandate like a CE or a training course before we'll officially license you. But at the same time, I do agree with the general principle of it. I really think it's an interesting idea. What have you guys seen? As, have you guys seen a lot of pharmacists moving uh, from other states to Idaho at all? Or are you just seeing like kind of it still hasn't really been a huge uh, shift at all? So I can't speak for the Board of Pharmacy necessarily in terms of the licensure rates. I don't, I don't have the answer to that exactly, but I can tell you a few things anecdotally. So being here at the College of Pharmacy, we have a faculty member who applied for a position at our university specifically because she wanted to be able to come practice in a state that had progressive pharmacy laws that allowed pharmacists to practice at the top of their education and training. So we were able to attract a faculty member to come work at our college specifically because of the laws in the state of Idaho. We've heard from applicants to pharmacy school as well that they're applying at Idaho State because they know that they'll get to learn in an advanced practice environment because our laws allow for that. So anecdotally, I have heard that there are a few people who are coming Anecdotally, I've heard of a handful of federal pharmacists who can choose to have their license in any state um, that have chosen to be licensed in Idaho because 
when you work in in the federal system, um, whether it's the VA or in the military, you're practicing under the policies that exist where you're practicing. You're not practicing under any specific state law. So it makes sense for them to want to get their license in a state that's not going to require them to memorize some law for a state that they're never going to practice in or never going to use. Yeah. And to that point, uh, we were talking about before we came on, on for the podcast, Ohio, where I practice has some, some very stringent laws when it comes to certain things like fentanyl use is crazy with, you know, allowed 84 days, certain day breaks in therapy you must be off it for so long after that. And it's just one of those things that is always, you're always questioning, like, did I do the right thing? You have to second guess it, look it up, use the PMP programs and all that. But if you don't have to do that in a state like Idaho, obviously it's easier. You don't have to worry about that. There's not the risk of that sort of thing. It's just more your clinical judgment with it, which is practicing at the top of your license. Exactly what you said. That's really awesome. Actually, hang on. I said practicing at the top of your education and training. Okay. In most states in the United States, practicing at the top of your license is less than being able to practice at the top of your education and training. It's a common thing that, you know, that has worked its way into our lexicon. And I hear people say all the time, oh, I want to be able to practice at the top of my license. Well, if you can practice at the top of your license, you're actually restricted from what your education and training is. I'm positive based on the ACPE standards and guidelines that all the colleges of pharmacy in the United States use that we are training pharmacists at a level to be able to practice above what most, most states allow pharmacists to do, Idaho being a, uh, the outlier in that. That you know, Thank you for calling me out on that because I didn't look at it that way and you're 100% right. I couldn't tell you how many times just in my retail practice that I see things that I could fix, but I'm not allowed to for one reason or another. Thank you for calling me out on that, quite honestly. That's, Sorry. No, that's it's great. It's just one of those things that I think it's a, a slight distinction, but it's important. And I don't know about you, but I really want to be able to practice at the top of my education and training, and I don't want to be restricted by what my license allows. Yes, I actually fully agree with you on that. And I just, you know what, I'm going to try and change the verbiage I use now because of that. And you know, that's, that's a great way of looking at it. I hope some of the listeners really kind of take that to heart too with when they're speaking with their state boards or they're doing other active work. Uh, so with that, kind of focusing on that, you know, the upper limits of your education, if you will, uh, Idaho has really taken some steps to kind of break down a lot of barriers when it comes to care. Can you give me some examples of things that they've, they're doing or they've done that are different from other states? Yeah. So in Idaho, we have the opportunity to prescribe independently. And that is pretty different than um, what happens in other states. Now that's somewhat restricted in that a pharmacist can prescribe independently based on some certain parameters. So it has to be appropriate for your education and training. So can't do something outside what you what you know how to do. You can only prescribe for situations that are minor and self-limiting. You can only prescribe when there's no new diagnosis needed for the patient. You can only prescribe uh, for things that could be diagnosed with a CLIA wave test, or you can only prescribe when it's something that's, you know, you determine as a pharmacist using your professional judgment is an emergency and needs to be taken care of right then. So those are the, the parameters. And there's a couple of other things. So you have to have the appropriate education and training. You have to have a relationship with the patient. You can't just have a survey online and start writing prescriptions based on, you know, the requests that you get online. You have to actually have a conversation with the patient. 
Um, you have to have a protocol that has appropriate inclusion and exclusion criteria, recognizing when things are outside your scope and outside your education and training, you have to be prepared to refer a patient. You have to document the activity. And this is a key thing. And this is a little bit different than every other prescriber in our state and pretty much different than prescribers anywhere is that when we prescribe for a patient, we have to communicate that back to that patient's primary care provider if they have one. And that's a key piece because one of the concerns that came up in what pharmacists were being allowed to do from predominantly from physicians was that we were going to impact the continuity of care with patients and there wasn't going to be, you know, that that level of comprehensive care that we would want for a patient to have. And so that that um, reporting requirement back to the patient's primary care provider, I think is a really important step. If you were to visit an urgent care center, you fill out all the information about who normally takes care of you, but do they communicate back to your primary care provider and say that you had a visit, that you had a diagnosis, that you went home with an antibiotic? No, in most cases they don't. No, not and at so all. And so this really helps with that continuity of care that if a patient comes in to the pharmacy and is treated for an uncomplicated UTI, that information is communicated back to the primary care provider. That's that's really awesome. I really like that. In fact, that's I wish Ohio would adopt this philosophy, to be quite honest with you. Uh, there's so many times that I, I could use something like that where I practice in retail and would really help expand my scope and better care for patients, drive costs down because they're, they're not, I don't refer them to an ER at midnight if I work at a 24-hour pharmacy and things of that nature. Do you know if there's been any studies or anything that's said anything that this has saved money for patients? So um, at this point, most of the care that's being provided in this way is being provided on a cash pay basis. So a patient will pay a fee, I would say anywhere from $25 to $50-ish um, for the visit. And then they would pay if there's a prescription that comes out of the visit. And so similar in terms of the types of co-pays that people would pay to go to urgent care is what they're paying to the pharmacy. So on the patient side, maybe not a huge benefit, but in the healthcare system, definitely a difference. Because yeah. if a patient goes to urgent care, they're paying their copay for urgent care, but then their health insurance plan is paying for the rest of that visit, which definitely costs more than the copay. Is it the best model in terms of, you know, long-term what we want for providers in terms of payment? Not necessarily, but that's, you know, our next step here in the state that we're going to work on tackling is fixing how pharmacists get paid for some of their services and making sure that uh, regardless of a patient's health plan, that they have access to be able to pay for their services without having to have, you know, just the cash pay payment. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, I'm sure an insurance company would rather pay the pharmacist 20, 25 bucks, what have you, than have to pay for possible ER visits in some cases for something simple. So yeah, that would that'd be a huge cost savings all around. So question for you, you mentioned a test that pharmacists would have to be able to do or something with the diagnosing part. Can you repeat that part? I might have missed it a little bit. I want to make sure listeners have a chance to hear what that was again. Sure. It's one of the areas where pharmacists can prescribe where if a patient doesn't already have a diagnosis, they can diagnose with a CLIA-waved test. So uh, CLIA-waved test. 
Clear wave? Clear. Okay. Yeah, C-L-I-A. So, for example, uh, a finger stick to test someone's blood glucose is a clear wave test. Generally, clear wave tests are tests that are easy enough that a patient could do it at home in their own home. Okay, good. So, for example, the ones that have been happening here in the state of Idaho are rapid flu and rapid strep tests are clear waved tests. So those are predominantly what we're seeing, that patients are coming into a pharmacy. And in fact, we know that there are physicians' offices here in the Boise Valley where I live, where if a patient calls and says they have what equate to be flu-like symptoms, they're sending that patient to Albertson's Pharmacy because they know that Albertson's can do a quick uh, rapid flu test, determine if the patient does have the flu, and send them home with the appropriate therapy. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a that's a streamline of care on top of everything else because I don't know how many times at pharmacy patients come in already irritated because they had to go wait for make the doctor's appointment, go wait there, pay that, deal with all that hassle, then come to the pharmacy to yet pay more. And this just streamlines that for what could be something simple like a strep test or a, or a flu test. So that's that's huge and like a total game changer in the way healthcare is delivered. Well, and it's something, too, that's really important to the people here in Idaho. We're a predominantly rural state. So, you know, we've got patients where the pharmacy is their only access to health care unless they drive for over an hour yeah. to get to anything else. And so uh, from a rural perspective, it's something that makes a lot of sense. And I know there's folks maybe that are listening that are saying, well, I don't live in a rural state. Every state has rural areas. And every state has need that is rural. We're not the only ones. But there's also folks in population centers as well that just because it's not rural doesn't mean it's not difficult for patients to access the care. If I have to take the bus to get to the care that I need and I have to change lines three times on the bus to get there and it takes me two hours to get there, or if I've got to take the train, you know... The, the access issues can still exist even in metropolitan, um, large metropolitan areas. Oh, yeah, that's totally right. I live up here, obviously, in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And southern Ohio is exactly what you described with rural. But those same issues with busing, transportation, and what have you exist in Cleveland, just going from the hospital to the pharmacy. And a lot of the right. hospitals are actually putting pharmacies in in the uh, like outpatient setting or in their uh, hospitals to help kind of with that burden of transportation and what have you, but they don't always have the best hours. They're only open like nine to five, eight to six, something like that. And whereas some of the other pharmacies are 24 hours, they're always there. They can always provide the service if someone got discharged from an ER or what have you. So that's a very great point because just going across a city like Cleveland, which is not New York City, it can take you an hour on the bus depending on what time of day it is. It might take you more if you have to switch a couple lines. So that's a that's actually a really great call out to why something like this could be implemented anywhere. So so with that, um, just kind of going over a few things here. You said uh, U- uncomplicated UTI, strep, flu. Uh, would this also mean like adding refills to prescriptions if somebody, say, happened to run out or something like that of a psych, psych med like, I don't know, fluoxetine or, you know, Buspar or something like that? So if you determine from your professional judgment that it was an emergency, it could fit under the independent prescribing laws. But thankfully, we also have a lot of other um, rules and regulations that allow for that type of ease. So in our state, uh, you can add one month to every prescription. In a six-month time frame. So say somebody's 
prescription expires, they need a little time to be able to get in and see their prescriber, you can add one more refill for another month. The other thing that's important too for us is that prescriptions don't actually expire in our state. In a lot of places, they expire after a year. You have to have a new prescription. In our state, if you've written a prescription with PRN refills, you could, as a pharmacist, potentially fill that for a significant period of time, longer than a year, as long as it was appropriate for that patient. So it really comes back to the pharmacist's judgment again in saying, is it appropriate for us to fill this up to a year? Is it appropriate for us to fill this beyond a year? When it says PRN, what does that mean to me as a pharmacist? And it's going to vary depending on the medication. Say it's for a statin. We know every diabetic within a certain age range needs to be on a statin. Well, do we want them to be continually refilling that without any type of monitoring? And if that monitoring is not happening in the pharmacy, if I'm not getting their liver function tests and not knowing how that's working, Am I providing the appropriate care if I'm letting that patient continue to refill for a year or longer without having that information? The other nice thing, too, is that Idaho pharmacists can order and interpret labs on their own. They don't have to get an order from somebody else. Which is exactly what we're taught in our PharmD training. So I feel like that's right in our education realm, even if it's not in our license, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, one awesome thing I think about that too, is you mentioned statin, which I I literally wrote that down specifically statins because a lot of insurance companies are measuring the amount of people who are on statins and how compliant they are. Well, one of the big issues with compliance is it might take someone a little bit to get to their doctor's office. They may forget about it. They don't like taking all their pills or something of that nature. And therefore they fall off for a month or three weeks or six weeks from taking their statin. And meanwhile, our reimbursement is being impacted from that. And so is the doctors in some case, or the physicians in some cases, because they're not taking their medication correctly or meeting their basic STARS measures. So what you just mentioned there is huge because it shows the insurance companies, hey, look, we can take care of the patient. So I think that's that's a great a great point out there, something like the statins and adding refills to it. Well, another another thing around that, we actually had, um, we have an MTM program here at our College of Pharmacy that we have um, contracts with some of the payers in our state to be able to manage all the MTM services for all of their covered lives. And so we have faculty and students who work providing MTM services, sometimes in person and sometimes over the phone, just depending on what makes sense for the patient. It took an average of 13 contacts to... <laughs> a prescriber to get a statin added. And so our payment in terms of our star ratings was lower because we weren't able to do that and weren't able to get that added. When you think about the administrative burden of 13 contacts to a prescriber, right? Like who has time to ask 13 times and who has time to respond, you know? Um, So from an administrative burden side, that's one of the nice things that's happened in Idaho. So whether it's extending the refills by a month or it's allowing for therapeutic substitution, which is something that we allow here in the state of Idaho, being able to adapt a prescription, say um, it got, you know, an e-prescription came across and it should have been for a liquid because it was for an infant and it wasn't in a liquid form in the way it came across we can automatically adapt that prescription without having to call the prescriber. So it saves that administrative burden that we bear in the pharmacy and that the prescriber bears. And so that's kind of a win, win, win all the way around. It's a win for the patient. It's a win for the prescriber and it's a win for the pharmacy. 
it's so funny you mentioned that because I was just the other day dealing with, uh, I have a huge Hispanic population and we have a Hispanic clinic and they are so overburdened because where they practice doesn't provide them with Spanish translators from their phone tree system. So they have to go answer all the calls themselves. And sometimes we'll be on hold with them for an hour to request refills or, you know, insert whatever problem you could possibly think of at a pharmacy. And so many times we call them, we put it on hold. If I have two pharmacists, you know, we've changed shifts and be like, oh, I'm on the hold with them. Here's everything I'm calling on. And then, you know, I've went over there and spoke with them and they're like, we just wish you could change it. And I'm like, I wish I could too. (laughs) So exactly what you're mentioning, it it fixes that whole problem for a a very high use population where I work at a very limited and very specialized uh, clinic. So that would be awesome for them. Is there anything- And if you think about it from a board of pharmacy perspective, how does that support improve public health? Yep. If it's easier for everyone to be able to have the appropriate care for that patient. Yeah, you've you've kind of got me a little revved up now. I really liked Idaho when I visited it about a few years ago, and I like the mountains. <laughs> Other than maybe some of the colder so weather. So you're moving now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's on my radar. Uh, it might be a little cold for my wife for the majority of the year, but it can't be that much worse than Ohio winters, I guess. Actually, I've experienced both, and I would say if you move to the Boise Valley, the winters aren't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. You might convince me. With that, is there anything else I might have missed that Idaho's really done to help change the game when it comes to pharmacy and things of that nature? So one of the things that I think has been really important is in reducing the amount of regulation, they've increased the opportunity for pharmacists to use their judgment. And we're taught so much as we're learning how to be pharmacists that the difference between a pharmacist and a pharmacy technician is the fact that we have judgment in how we provide care for the patients, that we're not just doing assigned tasks. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really important thing. And when you think about the burnout that happens across healthcare, it can happen even if you have judgment. But one of the things when people burn out, part of their satisfaction is really feeling like they're able to make a difference. And the more often you can use your judgment to better a patient's life, the more likely you are to be satisfied with what you're doing. So from a burnout and a satisfaction perspective, the opportunity to be able to practice in a way where you can continually use your judgment is something that I think is important. It's also harder. There's not anything that's black and white that says you must do this exactly this way, or there's nothing in our laws that say that your counter has to be X number of feet long or how much counter space you have to have or what type of security you have to have in your pharmacy. So it's not as easy from that perspective that there's not someone telling you exactly how you have to do things, but it does provide what I think is better satisfaction and that you're able to really use your judgment to help patients get the care that they so much need. Yeah, I I would fully agree with that. I would I would actually really love to see a lot of the stuff you guys have mentioned rolled out all across the US in various states. I and I, I wonder if there's some sort of study that there could be a comparison between a state like mine with Ohio versus Idaho versus California just to show some of the major differences in the time savings, cost savings and so on and so on, because that would be a really awesome and a very eye-opening study, either which way to kind of like, hey, this is right, this is wrong, or here's the huge benefits. I don't know how you so do there, that. <laughs> there may or may not be various versions of what you just described oh, really? uh, underway with some of our faculty. Yeah. Well, if you need help so. from Ohio's end, please, please reach <laughs> out to me. I would be glad because I think this would be an awesome thing all around. But I'm glad to hear that someone's doing that because... 
I don't always think I'm the smartest person in the room, but usually if I thought of it, somebody else has already moving on it. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that they are. So with that, if you could change one thing overall about pharmacy, what would you change? I would say, and it's, it's from a perspective of what I just mentioned, that I would hope that pharmacists would want things to be less regulated and less black and white. And I have learned that not all pharmacists think that way or want to practice that way, you know, in some of these changes. It's taken a little bit, you know, there's definitely been some folks that have taken a little of the time to embrace some of these changes, especially if they have been practicing in a way where everything's been fairly black and white. So thinking about pharmacy and thinking about pharmacists generally, we want everything spelled out to us exactly how you want me to do it. We're very good at following guidelines which I think is a strength, you know, when you're taking care of patients at this high of a level. But at the same time, we also can't say we want to use our judgment if we want everything spelled out. And so if I could change one thing about pharmacy, it would be that I would want pharmacists more often in more states to really truly be able to use their judgment and not think that you need specific law that's going to tell you exactly how you have to do it. Yeah, I would I would actually totally agree with that too. I think part of that goes back to just the personality of people who who went into pharmacy schools thinking of it was an IS, ISTJ, the personality test, more that introverted mm-hmm. personality whereas, you know, being a little more extroverted in this case might actually provide better care for people and better results all around. So yeah, I would totally agree with that. Is there anything else you want to say before we close out this episode at all? Well, you had mentioned to me before about if I could change one one pharmacy law, oh, what yeah. would that be? <laughs> I would say, so I have two answers to this. I would make the DEA be a little bit more clear about C2s, especially forwarding C2s. But really, um, <laughs> from teaching pharmacy law, that's a really tough one for everybody. Yeah, um, It's really unclear what they say you can and can't do and what what that really means. But but the one that I would actually choose is here in the state of Idaho, we have in the section of our rules, we have the general section that talks about that if something's not expressly prohibited within our laws, then it's allowed. And I wish every state had that. Because more often than not, pharmacists think we need to have something very, very specific outlined in our laws. So, for example, if you were to search the Idaho Pharmacy Rulebook, both the statutes and the rules, and look for the word statin, you wouldn't find it. But you can prescribe a statin for a patient who is diabetic because there's no new diagnosis required. It fits in that other category. Other states would want there to be three pages describing how you're going to prescribe a statin. At least. Um, at least. <laughs> so... So from my perspective, if I could change one thing across the board, it would be that there would be that kind of a statement around express prohibition, that if something's not expressly prohibited in the state, then it's allowed. I think that's a great call out. And that also allows a lot of room for innovation, too, because it allows the, the laws to kind of be open to let something happen. And if it's good or bad, then we, and it needs to be regulated, then they can be jumped in after the fact, but we might not know it if we banned it to begin with. So I think that's a great call out. 
Hey, uh, Jennifer, thanks again for hopping on the podcast with me today. I think you've been an awesome guest in explaining this and making this a very enjoyable conversation, what could be very dry. Thanks again. <laughs> uh, laws are, are exactly what everyone likes. And when you combine that with politics, it could be a very dry conversation. But thank you again for hopping on the podcast with me today. Clearly, you're an expert in your field, and I appreciate your time for coming on here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. You can find us, as always, on virtually everywhere you download podcasts or hit us up on any of the social medias. Uh, most of them are at political underscore RX or on Facebook. You can look at Political Pharmacist. Thanks. Have a great day.